Thank you very much. That last little line was very important because I've already developed the reputation of uh, going over. I will try to do better. I got everything out last night, and I thought about it in my head and tried to picture, okay, I got about 40 minutes uh, this morning with you, and so I'm trying to do it. I may not do a very good job, but I do want you to know that I've tried, at least tried, to make sure I do it, uh, everything I need to do in 40 minutes uh, or less, I guess. Sometimes you don't mind getting out a little bit early, but 40 minutes at... Uh, and I know you are a very, very wise church. You have a nice big clock back there to remind me what time it is. Uh, I mentioned to the folks who were there last night, we have a clock like the one you have right in front of me. Uh, now, this is a dangerous practice here uh, because that one's faster there than this one, so I've got to keep my eyes and go between two. I've been told that the one on my right is the accurate one, and so I'll try to keep my uh, eyes on that and pay close attention to it. But I get to talking. That's one of my problems. I get to talking. And I start to get a little bit excited, and sometimes I forget about time a little bit, but I will try to do much, much better this morning uh, with you. My wife is with me. Uh, she was not here yesterday, so for those of you who met me, you heard me talk about it a little bit. She is here. Laura, where are you? So there you go. She's over here in this little corner, and um, she is a delightful person, the delight of my life. Uh, and, you know, you may have been able to tell by the name Laura Renee Thibodeau uh, is her maiden name. Uh, she is from Lake Charles, and some of you might have some friends and family in that neck of the woods. I encourage you to talk to her. You can swap recipes. Uh, she has a great crawfish etouffee recipe, great jambalaya recipe, great gumbo recipe, uh, dirty rice recipe, I mean the whole nine yards. So if you want to swap some recipes, we're always happy to be able to do that with you. And uh, she loves to cook, and she does a good job of it. Um, we did meet at Harding. Uh, I was a senior. She was a freshman. And uh, she always likes to joke and tell everybody I was running out of shopping days uh, at Harding there. So I had to, <coughs> you know, go through the express line or whatever. I don't know what it was. But anyway, we met, and we've been married for 25 years now and have loved every single minute of it, have two wonderful children. Appreciate Doug taking the time to introduce them. Uh, we read a passage from Joshua chapter 8. In many ways, it functions like a midterm exam. Uh, Joshua 8 is not exactly right in the middle of the book, but it is in this middle part of the book. Joshua 8 is a pause moment in the storyline. We've already fought some battles. Jericho happened in chapter 6. Over the chapters of 7 and 8, we fought the Battle of Ai. The first time it didn't go so well for us, the Battle of Ai. The second time it went much better. After that second successful battle against the uh, people of Ai, we pause, take a little time out, do a little regrouping, and we renew our vows. That's what was read for us, what Doug read for us just a moment ago, was a vow renewal ceremony where we pause and remind ourselves, okay, uh, we are a certain people. We have an identity, and our identity is tied into this covenant relationship with God. And when we forget about that relationship, then we cease to be the people we were called to be. And every once in a while, we have to remind ourselves, don't we? We tend to forget. Human beings have that tendency, don't they? Uh, we know that very well as parents with a 22 and an 18-year-old, 19-year-old as of today. Our daughter is now 19. Uh, as a 22 and a 19-year-old, they sometimes forget things, and you have to remind your children, don't you? Sometimes more than once. Sometimes dozens of times you have to remind them. Well, that's really what you have in Scripture. In many different places, the people of God are reminded about certain things. They are reminded about what God has done for them. They are reminded about what's expected of them. That's part of a relationship, right? 
as parents, you do a lot of things for your children. You sacrifice. You spend money on them. You try to provide opportunities for them. Uh, maybe you make life a little bit better for them than it was for you. You do all these things for them. And you do have some expectations of them, don't you? That's what a covenant is. Mutual obligations, mutual expectations, parent, child, husband, wife, all kinds of relationships that we might have with friends, business relationships where there are mutual expectations and mutual obligations that the two different parties enter into together. Israel has entered into a covenant relationship with God. God has entered into a covenant relationship with this people. They are his people. He is their God. That's the way it's all understood. But as you go along through life, life happens and you tend to forget about things. There are competing voices out there, other voices that say, no, you need to go in this direction. You need to follow after me, not God. You need to do this over here. For ancient Israel, in their days, the days of Joshua, and it keeps on going through days like David and Solomon and so forth and so on, those competing voices can be called gods because that is the primary competition for loyalty to the God of Israel, the worship of other gods. We can call the god Baal. We can call the god Asherah. We can call the god Chemosh, Marduk all kinds of names, all kinds of deities. They are all rivals. They are all competing voices that are out there trying to get the ear of this particular people. And so in Joshua chapter 8, as we're conquering the land, as we are settling into the land, as we are becoming the people, and all of our land is being divided up here a little bit later on among the tribes, so they each have their place to go, their place to call home. Before we do all that, let's have a little pause, a little retreat, and let's remind ourselves of our core, basic relationship. We are the people of God. This Yahweh, the God of Israel, He is our God. There is no other God, and we are His people. Now, if we go to the expectations and obligations, uh, why should Israel take this God seriously? Well, one of the reasons we're going to talk about this morning is uh, that God has made a promise. Now, there are several promises we could talk about throughout Scripture, and I'm very aware of all that, but I just have to have time for one today. And it uh, connects with the book of Joshua very, very well, and it is the theme. And you see the slide up there that says, Abide. And below it, the phrase, I am with you. This is the promise I want to lock in on this morning because it is so very important for Israel's self-understanding as a people and as they place their trust in this God what Israel has to trust is God will be with them now that's a very difficult thing isn't it even for us today post Christ I mean we know about the story of Jesus Christ right we know the story of the gospel we know about the death burial resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ we know this story we have even better news. But even we sometimes forget things, right? People in Joshua's day tended to forget. And so we need to be reminded of this one promise, this promise that I am with you. Now, I want to look at it as a sure promise, a sure promise. Uh, and going back, this has roots. 
The first time this idea comes across is not to the people of Israel in the days of Joshua. There are actually other places and points in time where God has already made this promise. Perhaps the best-known one and the biggest one, the biggest occasion of all, happens at the burning bush. Exodus 3 is the call or commissioning of Moses. And Moses is going to become the leader of Israel. He is going to go into Egypt, and he's going to say to the Pharaoh, Let my people go. In that exact voice. He's going to get their attention, and he and the Pharaoh are going to go round about, round about. And what they're going to do is answer this question. Who is Yahweh? Who is this Lord? Pharaoh's going to say, who is this Yahweh feller that I should let the people go? I got a pretty good system in place here. I'm under budget because I don't pay the workers. And uh, I don't really want to lose this labor force. Things are working out very nicely for me as Pharaoh. I want to keep it the way that it is. And this Yahweh that you mentioned, I know who he is. So the plagues answer this question. But for Moses, it is much more fundamental than that. It is much more than just a sideshow of ten plagues or ten signs or ten wonders. It goes back to this root language that we find in Exodus 3. Prior to the plagues, God has already told Moses, my name, if you want to call it a name, is actually a verb. And you and this people can carry it with you wherever you go. Listen to these words in Exodus 3.12. God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign all right, for you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now, this mountain, of course, is Sinai or Horeb. This is the mountain where Moses will lead the people, and they will have the initial uh, covenant ceremony. In Joshua chapter 8, we go back to other mountains and we renew the covenant. But this is the initial storyline here. Moses is on Mount Sinai. When he sees the burning bush, he'll bring the people back to Mount Sinai and we'll get the Ten Commandments and we will have covenant and this relationship will begin. And it will begin with Yahweh's words. I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. Then you get the Ten Commandments. Before he lists those Ten Commandments, God says, I am the one who has already been with you. I am the one with you on this mountain, and I will be the one with you through the wilderness. And even when you are not all that faithful, and you won't be, I'm still going to be with you. That's what's going on here in Exodus, in Leviticus, in Numbers, in Deuteronomy. This God is saying, the one thing you can count on, this one sure promise, is that I will be with you. Even in times when it may not appear to be the case, I will be with you. This is God. This is this God, and this is the promise that he's making. Now, I call it the sure promise because you see it several places in Scripture. We're going to, we're going to get back to Joshua in just a second. Uh, Isaiah 7:14. Maybe you've heard of this passage before. Matthew liked this verse quite a bit as well, and Matthew uses it himself. But I'm just going to read it to you here. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. We say it, Emmanuel. Now, I would imagine many of us in here know what Emmanuel means, right? What does Emmanuel mean? 
God is with us. God is with us. Now, let me just take about two minutes here to tell you what's going on in Isaiah 7. There is a king of Judah by the name of Ahaz. And Ahaz is in a moment of crisis. And this is what our sermon is going to be about a little bit later on here. We've got a crisis moment on our hands. And good leaders, what do they do in times of crisis? Well, they rise to the, to the occasion, don't they? They take on the challenge and they become well-known leaders because they met the challenge head-on, they led the people, and they not only met that challenge, but something greater even happened out of the result of that crisis, right? Ahaz, many of you have never heard of Ahaz, have you? You didn't even know he was the king in Isaiah chapter 7, did you? There's a reason for that. He's not a very good king. And what Isaiah is trying to do for old Ahaz here is to let him know that in this time of crisis, when you have these other kings that are bearing down on you and threatening to attack you in the city of Jerusalem, God's with us. God's with us. You can trust God, and you don't have to do what you're about to do. Don't do what you're about to do, Ahaz. It's a big, big mistake. Don't do it. Place your trust in God. Now, many of you probably know what Ahaz is about to do. And he does not listen to Isaiah. Just because a prophet speaks doesn't mean that people listen. Right? You can have the word of the Lord, and you can have some awful deaf ears that don't listen to what's being said there. Right? They don't hear what God has to say at that particular moment. And you have that analogy used throughout Scripture, that those who can't hear often hear better than those who can, and those who can't hear don't hear so well at all. And Ahaz, as king, does not listen at all. And what he does is he places his trust not in God, but in yet another foreign king and makes an alliance with him. He does not listen to this word. He does not trust the promise. God is with us. There's a reason why Matthew likes this verse, because in Jesus Christ we hear this promise, don't we? And we can read the story of the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And Isaiah 7:14 is quoted. But we also hear Jesus toward the end of the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew 28:20, 20, what we might call the Great Commission, where we are sent out as disciples into the world. Well, listen to the promise that we have in Matthew 28:20. 20. And surely, always, to the very end of the age, I am with you. Now listen to those other words. We're used to this phrase, always to the end of the age, I am with you. But listen, surely you can count on it. There is no doubt. God is with us. You can trust this statement. And to the very end of the age. The good news of the gospel story is this, that even in death, God is with us. And we need to hear that before that time comes. And we need to trust that before that time comes. That's what's so very important about Bible class, worship time together. Whereas brothers and sisters in Christ, we start to gather together and we start to realize that we share some common things. And one of the things that we share in common is our faith, our trust, our confession that Jesus is Lord. And the reason he's Lord is because he overcame death. Just because we die, that does not mean God has abandoned us. God is with us even in death. 
even in the tragic deaths that happen far too soon in a person's life, even in the graceful deaths of an older woman or man who have lived uh, exemplary lives of faith and they've lived up into their 80s or even their 90s and it's a peaceful leaving of this world, it doesn't matter the type of death. God is with us. And I know that's hard to hear sometimes. So we need to hear it before those times come along in our lives. So when they do, we already have that bedrock of faith. God is with us, even in death. This is a sure promise. Now, I've kind of gone around a little bit here. I want to come back to the book of Joshua here as well. In the, in the book itself, this abiding presence of God, God abides with his people, becomes very, very important in several different ways. Uh, first of all, through land. God is with this people through the promise of land, through the giving of land is a better way of putting it. The land is a gift. It's very clear. You don't have to tell, it doesn't take you very long. And if you have your Bibles, hopefully you've got your Bibles or your electronic devices with you here, uh, open it up to the, uh, to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. In Joshua chapter 1, it doesn't take very long for us to get into this very basic theme that runs from beginning to end of the book. That's why I put chapters 1 through 24, and I didn't want to make, you know, a thousand slides going through the whole book of Joshua because it would take up all of our time to read Joshua anyway, right? We wouldn't be able to talk about anything else. But what you can do is you can read Joshua 1 through Joshua 24, and you're going to get this theme over and over and over again. I want to start off here by looking at chapter 1, verse 2, my servant Moses is dead. Now uh, proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the Israelites. Now those who study literature and talk about books will often tell you that what's very important in understanding what a book is about, beginnings and endings. And usually there's a middle point that's also very crucial. We looked at a midpoint here just a moment ago in chapter 8. Crucial little midpoint moment. Here, right off the bat, we're given a very important theme. You hear lots of little things here, but the one I want to lock in on right now is this land, the land that I am giving you. Land is a gift. But this land that they live on is also a way of remembering that God is with them. While they are in the land, they have confidence that God is with them. Uh, we're going to close a little bit later on with a passage that's going to talk about you know, what does it mean not to be in the land and is God still with us when we're not in the land? That's a good question to ask, right? I mean, if all this is tied into our life in the land, what happens if we're not in the land? Is God still with us or has God abandoned us? But in the book of Joshua itself, one of the ways in which the people know that God is with them is land. Now, this is a, a little bit difficult for us because most of us uh, really think about you know, the promise of God being heaven. God is with us because we will be in heaven with God. And that's so very, very true. One of the things that we have to do when we read the Old Testament and step back in time a little bit here is recognize that the promise is locked into a particular point and place on the map. This land we call Israel. How many of you have ever been to Israel? Done one of the Holy Land tours? We have a few maybe who can. I haven't been able to go myself. Here I am, a teacher of Old Testament, never been able to go. I need to go sometime. Uh, but if you've ever gone, everybody who goes talks about what a wonderful, wonderful experience that it is. This land that was given to them is the land of promise. Promise by God who has gifted them with this land. And so it's very tangible, very concrete. So they know God abides with them 
while they live in the land and experience the fruit of the land. So one way in which we can talk about God's abiding presence is to watch for land. So as you read the book of Joshua, as you go through here, look for all the times land pops up. You will see it all over the place in God's giving of the land. All right, next, Torah. How does God continue to abide with his people? Through the law, Torah, first five books of your Old Testaments. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, for a lot of us, we might think of that, oh, that's law. And we kind of, you know, painful looks on our faces. We grimace a little bit here. Sometimes, you know, that's the law. And we have grace and truth. And I've read John, so I'm very well aware of all that. But I've also read Psalm 119. That's that long, long, long psalm. If you want to look good in front of all your friends on a Bible trivia question, they ask you, what's the longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119. And it's long because uh, it has this great, great exposition on the beauty of the law. And you see all kinds of synonyms, the law of God, the word of God, the commandments of God, the statutes of God, the judgments of God, the ordinances of God. They do all kinds of things. We, but it's all really about the Torah and the beauty of the Torah and how the Torah gives life and how the Torah reminds the people that God is with them. God is with them through the Torah. Uh, you got your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 1, I hope. One of the things that Joshua is told to do uh, in these verses is to keep that law close at hand. Look at verse 7 of chapter 1. Be strong and courageous. Be careful to act in accordance with all the law that my servant Moses commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left so that you may be successful wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to act in accordance with all that is written in it. For then you shall make your way prosperous and then you shall be successful. It goes on a little bit further there. But here is this law. And Joshua, if you're going to be a successful leader, you need to have this law close at hand. You need to keep it on your bedstand at night. And instead of you know, watching ESPN every night, Joshua, before you go to bed, uh, you need to pick this law up from time to time, and you need to read it. And in fact, you don't need to read it just so you can check it off your to-do list for the day. Whew, got that one chapter of Bible reading out of the way. Man, I didn't think I was going to make it today. No. You don't just read it to check it off your to-do list. You meditate upon it. You reflect upon it. You're not in a hurry to get through it. You actually live in it and let this form your life. Let me give you an example. Uh, there's a certain king who comes along a little bit later on. And for the most part, he's a good king, isn't he? He's very wise, very, very wise king. Does a lot of great things here. Builds a temple for God, in fact. But when we get to chapter 11 of 1 Kings and this king's storyline, we read a certain line that raises our eyebrows just a little bit. And if you read Joshua 1, we can understand why it raises our eyebrows a little bit. Because this king married many foreign women, and these wives of his turned his heart. That's the phrase, turned his heart to follow after these other gods. We've been talking all morning long about what Israel's supposed to do or not do, right? And so the Torah is a living reminder, a living, breather reminder, the word of God as it is for us today. Now we have gospel as well, don't we? But we are to read it, to meditate upon it, reflect upon it, let it become a part of our lives to determine how we live out our lives. It is not a 
read it through once in your lifetime and boop, done with that. Don't ever need it again. No, it stays with us throughout our lives and determines who we are. All right, something else that reminds us about the abiding presence of God. A little bit more tangible, perhaps. Maybe this notion of Torah and reading Scripture, maybe that's a little bit too abstract for you. You need something physical. You need something that's right in front of your eyes. You need to be able to see it. All right, you need that kind of confidence. Well, if that's the kind of person you are, God provides that as well to remind the people that he is with them. In the book of Joshua, the Ark of the Covenant plays a very important role in the storyline. Can we stop to think about a couple of different ways in which the Ark is very, very important in the story? Anybody with any ideas? When they cross the Jordan River, that water does not stop flowing, does it, until what happens? The priests carrying the ark, the soles of their feet touch the water, and when the soles of their feet touch the water, then the water stops flowing. It just drains on down into the Dead Sea, and now you have a dry riverbed, and you have a spiritual dam north of where they are crossing, and so the water just flows on out, and people now have a dry riverbed to cross over into, into the land. But that happens only when the Ark of the Covenant is in their midst. And when the priests carry that ark, they are carrying God in a sense, and the waters stop. In the Battle of Jericho, the Ark of the Covenant is going to play a very important role. The priests, once again, will carry the Ark of the Covenant. They'll carry it around the city one time, six different days, for a total of six times. And on the seventh day, how many times do they carry that Ark of the Covenant around the city? Seven times. So a total of 13 times that Ark of the Covenant circles the city of Jericho. But the Ark of the Covenant goes before the people into battle. A little bit later on, we're going to establish a city, a place called Shiloh. And Shiloh is going to have an important place in their lives as well because Shiloh is going to be where the tabernacle of God is. And this tabernacle will be where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's going to be where the priests officiate. It gives us very physical, very visible, very tangible idea that God is with us. God abides in our midst. In case you wondered, in case you doubted, here it is. You have a place to go and worship. And so now we have a physical structure. Look at chapter 19, verse 51. I have this verse up for us. I thought we might want to read it, might gain something from this little idea here of the Ark of the Covenant. In your Bibles... Joshua 19:51. These are the inheritance that the priest Eleazar and Joshua, son of Nun, and the heads of the families of the tribes of the Israelites distributed by lot at Shiloh before the Lord. Before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. How is God present among the Israelites in the days of Joshua? How does he remind them that he still abides with them? through this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. And it's where the Ark of the Covenant is. And now they have a particular place. Now, one of the big differences between Israel and Canaan, Canaanites worshipped willy-nilly wherever there's a green hill and a nice leafy tree. You got a green, you got a hill that has a little bit of greenery on it, boom, there you go. You can have a shrine. You can have an altar. You can offer some sacrifices. But that's not the way it's supposed to be for Israel. God says, I'm one God, and there will be one place. And it will be the place that I choose. And ultimately, when we get to the story of David, that place will become Jerusalem. But before David, it's somewhere else. And that somewhere else here is Shiloh. And Shiloh functions like Jerusalem. It's the place where people can go. 
And what does Jesus say about the temple? What is the purpose of the temple? It's supposed to be a place of prayer. But it got turned into a den of robbers, didn't it? A place of prayer. A place where people can go when they're hurting. A place people can go when they have a need they need to cry out before God with. It needs to be a place where people can come. And that you don't put roadblocks in front of them so that they have all kinds of reasons not to go. But it's a place where people can be reminded that God abides with them. God dwells among them. Now, I know what John 1 says. I've read John 1 before. And I know the language that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we don't have a Shiloh. We don't really need Jerusalem. God dwells with us in Jesus Christ. We worship in truth and in spirit. Wherever two or three are gathered together, I am I am there. We don't have to go to a particular place, but for the time of Joshua and for the people in this point in time and place, this was a nice little reminder that God still abides with them. Okay? Well, I, I've read John, but I think it's important to hear this from Joshua's perspective. All right, now, every once in a while, this story, in chapter, we don't have time to get into all the details here. I am trying to keep an eye on the clock over there. I don't want to keep you over. Uh, but there's a neat little story toward the end of Joshua that a lot of times we don't get to. You know, we're reading through Joshua, and we're doing pretty good. Battle of Jericho is pretty exciting, and we can do some other things here. And it's keeping our attention fairly well, and we're making our way through Scripture there. And then we start reading about how they divided all the tribes up, and we start to lose a little interest there, and it gets a little harder to read, a little bit more of a challenge. And so we don't sometimes, you know, don't finish the book. And we miss out on a great story in chapter 22. And we'll talk more about it this afternoon when we actually are working through the book here as well. But we'll talk some more about this little book here. where uh, This chapter talks about how the different tribes so easily fragment. They so easily divide. They so easily break up. You ever notice that about relationships? How easy it is to break them up? not hard, is it? Uh, breaking up happens all the time. And we talk, often think about you know, young people and you know, the dating relationship when we think about breakups. We can think about the more serious nature of our marriages that break up. But it's not just two people. Sometimes it's a collection of people, an assembly of people, the church that breaks up. Well, it's kind of interesting, the book of Joshua... We have a story about these 12 tribes. And if you operate under the assumption that these 12 tribes come from 12 brothers and they all loved each other and they always were arm in arm singing Kumbaya, my Lord, and they were just happy all the time and they were getting together and family reunions were these nice, wonderful, festive occasions where everybody was just laughing and telling jokes and uh, they were, you know, the biggest competition was who would win 42 competition there. Uh, that's not the way this family operated at all. They didn't really like each other often. They would fight. At the drop of a hat. One tribe would go this way. Another tribe would go that way. See ya. Maybe. If I'm lucky, never. That sometimes was the attitude among these tribes. And we see it here in Joshua 22. When two and a half tribes whose land holdings are on the other side of the Jordan River. And the nine and a half tribes are on this side. That river 
That's right there. Rivers form boundaries. And now all of a sudden people are beginning to wonder, you know, are we really one people? Are we one nation? Or are we two? Do those two and a half tribes on the other side of that river, are they really part of us? Are they really Israel? Or would they be better understood as some other group? That's a big question. That's what chapter 22 is dealing with. And to remind themselves that God dwells with them and God is among them, they build an altar so that they can remember these things. So let's look at chapter 22, verse 31, and let's hear the word of the Lord on this matter as these folks uh, begin to rejoice uh, on this particular issue here. After they've almost broken up, after they've almost gotten into a fight, uh, the priest, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, said to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the Manassites, those tribes on the other side of the river, Today we know that the Lord is with us. We know that the Lord still abides with us because you have not committed this treachery. You have not gone to the other side of the river to form your own worship place, to be your own people, but you still are a part of us. We still are one assembling of God's people. And so unity is a way of determining God's presence in our midst. Isn't that what Jesus prayed in John 17? Wasn't that the heart of his prayer? The unity of God's people? You see it here and how hard it is to maintain. It is so fragile. Unity is so fragile, isn't it? It is so very difficult to maintain. But here we have this charge, a little reminder that uh, we need to keep it uh, as much as we possibly can. And then finally, God's presence, His abiding presence in our midst, we find in that every promise is fulfilled. Every promise is fulfilled. God has been doing a lot of things for Israel, primarily in the book of Joshua, giving the land. And God has fulfilled His promise. He has done what He said He would do. And so in verse 14, we have this beautiful little passage of Scripture where Joshua is getting old, advanced in years, and he's about to die and leave them. But he has these words that he wants to impart to them before he goes. And now I'm about to go in the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one thing has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. You know God is in your midst you know God abides with you because God has kept his promise. You're living in the land he promised you. You're all here together listening to me because of this God and what this God has done and how this God continues to abide with us. Sometimes he abides with us. Sometimes he abides in spite of us. Right? Sometimes he abides for us. He might occasionally abide against us just to get our attention, get us going back in the right direction. But God always abides. He always abides. I have one more little slide. We're going to step out of the book of Joshua here. And this is where I want to end for the morning because it does give us some reflection. And I did want to, you know, to give you a little bit of a notion that uh, this promise of God's abiding presence uh, though we're talking about the book of Joshua, and I tried to show you how it works out in the book of Joshua in many different ways here, but it's an ongoing and it's a sure promise that extends even beyond the promises that were made to Joshua and the people in that time. In Isaiah chapter 41, 
it occurs in a part of Scripture where the Israelites being addressed in this particular section of Isaiah, they don't live in the land. They're in Babylon. They're the exiles. They've been deported, dispersed, scattered, whatever word you want to put in there. But now we have some Israelites who were left in the land, usually the poor among them. Nobody wants the poor, right? And even the people, you know, the Israelite people, they didn't care for the poor. The Babylonians certainly didn't care for the poor. I mean, those were other mouths to feed that they got to keep going there. So they just left them behind. But they did take a lot of the leaders, a lot of the leading folks, and a big chunk of the population were carted off into Babylonia, into exile. And this word in Isaiah 41 is addressed to that group who was taken off into exile. A little reminder, because what happens in the ancient world is that when you have a battle, when you fight a war, it is also a statement about the power of your God. Because whichever army wins, that God won. That God is more powerful. In a sense, wars are evangelistic. Weird way of thinking about it, right? But if you win the war, then all those who are defeated then pretty much become your property, and you can do with them whatever you want to do to them. That's just the way it is in the ancient world. And many of them will simply become a part of your country. You'll bring them in, you'll put them in different places here, and you'll start to worship their God. One of the most remarkable stories in all of history is how the losing God wins. You know, it had been easy for everybody to think, all the Israelites, you know, back in the days of Joshua, we had this Joshua, he led us here, we were in the land, God promised us the land, he gave us the land, they were sitting in the land, we were enjoying the fruits of the land, everything was going well for us. We had everything God ever said he was going to do, he did, we experienced that. We knew God was with us, we knew God abided amongst us. We knew that because we saw that, we experienced that. But what about sitting in Babylonia? What about in exile, when you're no longer in the land, when you're somebody else's servant, you're under somebody else's rule? Does God still abide with you? Is he still in your midst? And your God has the big L on his forehead, loser God. All right? He couldn't even deliver you in battle. That's a weak, that's a pitiful, that's a pathetic God. You ought to worship our God. Because our God empowered us to defeat your God and you. That's what all logic says in this situation in Babylonia. You should worship our God because our God kicked your God's tail in battle. Now, which God would you want to worship? But somehow, in some way, God speaks into this situation. And most of you have no idea who the Babylonian gods are. You can't name them. You don't know who they are. You may have heard of one or two, but you have no idea who the... But you do know who the God of Israel is, don't you? You do know who this loser God is. And God tends to work this way. I mean, he sure looked like a loser on the cross, didn't he? Didn't he look like a loser? And that's exactly what that's all about. Loser. There is Jesus is. Save everybody else, but he can't even save himself. You can hear the taunts as people walk by. Unimpressive. Thought we'd get a little bit better show than that. No. Listen to this word to the exiles in Isaiah 41. So do not fear, for I am with you. Even in exile, even in death, 
I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is not spoken from a position of strength. And yet, it contains all the strength in the world. The foolishness of God. Exhibit A. This little ragtag group of exiles will maintain their faith. They will come home and they will renew this presence with God in the land because our God is with us. Thank you very much.